This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we're in the middle of chapter 2. And Alter Rebbe explained, we learned last week, that after he established that fasting has nothing to do with teshuva, it's not even a detail, not even an aspect of teshuva, the essence of teshuva is the resolution that you're going to change going forward. The details of teshuva is confession, asking forgiveness, wiping the slate clean, making amends, regret, not fasting. Fasting has nothing to do, it's not part of teshuva. Teshuva is not about dying or fasting. Teshuva is about living. Teshuva is a mitzvah for the living. It's a mitzvah to live. And I'll explain later, teshuva also has to be even joyful. Teshuva is for the living. You, you join the living. Fasting is no part of it. This is the mistake that people associate teshuva with being morose, depressed, dejected, down, demoralized. That's not, that's not Truva. Truva is tremendous energy, tremendous, very positive, very... You rejoin the living. Renewal. A rebirth. A rebirth. Wholesome. Connecting, reconnecting, plugging in, rejuvenating, coming alive. It's about life. It's not about dying, torture, pain, suffering. Even those sins when a Jew violates a negative prohibition and you created such a scar in the universe and in the spiritual realms and even the God Almighty Himself that you, have, you need a cleansing. You need an intense cleansing. It's like you've got a real stain in your clothes. A light stain. You give one little shake and it's gone. You do a ketchup stain, you need a little more intense washing. But then there are stains that just throwing it into the dryer, I mean, to the washer won't work. You have to sit and scrub. That's when truva is not enough, Yom Kippur is not enough, you need pain and suffering. Hashem has to personally scrub away, get the schmutz out, to restore your clothes, the soul, restore it back to its youthful freshness, innocence. To recapture that innocence, you have to get rid of all the crookedness and twistedness that we visited in ourselves because of our poor choices. So Hashem, out of His infinite mercy, infinite kindness, gives us some pain and suffering, breaks our heart, in order that we should rediscover our soul, rediscover ourselves. But that's the pain and suffering that Hashem brings upon us. Not pain and suffering that we bring in ourselves. It's not about being masochistic and torturing yourself and fasting and depriving yourself. That's not what truth is. You have to do teshuva. And if you do teshuva out of love, Hashem will respond. Hashem responds in kind. If you turn to Hashem, Hashem turns to us, and Hashem personally takes care of us, and cleanses us, and restores our innocence, and purity, and wholesomeness. 
because it is a miracle. Truva is a miracle. It is a transplant. You severed your head. We're talking about this, especially the sins that the, receives a death penalty in the hands of heaven. Karis, your soul is cut off. You did such a terrible sin that you cut yourself off from the source of life. How do you restore a head? Science hasn't figured that one out yet. That's what Shuvah does. It's a miracle. Hashem responds. When you do it to Shuvah, Hashem responds in kind and reattaches our head. So that's a, pr- a process only Hashem could do. We can't do that. It's not within our power. You can roll in a hill of ants and you can roll naked in the snow from today till tomorrow. That's not going to achieve the Shuvah. That's not even going to bring it closer. That's not even a detail, not even an aspect of the Shuvah. Teshuva is when you do your part, Hashem reattaches your head, Hashem reconnects you, Hashem will do his part and will cleanse you and will bring upon you the cleansing process, which is the pain and suffering. So it's not about, nevertheless, we do find the concept of fasting. He says the concept of fasting has nothing to do with truth. As is clearly established in chapter 1, however, tshuva, even when God reattaches your head and cleanses you, and you wipe the slate clean, and you're forgiven, and nothing will be remembered, not in this world, not in the world to come, in the court, in the court of law, in the court of justice, in the heavenly justice, you are exonerated, you are free, you are clean. Still something is missing. What's missing? What's missing is the innocence, the trust. The relationship was shattered, was broken. Okay. I forgive you. I'm not angry at you. That's taken care of. It's genuine. You're forgiven. It's not a game. It's real. You're forgiven. But am I going to take you into my inner circle? Do I trust you? Sorry, that trust is gone. It's shattered. I can't trust you. You you haven't restored the relationship to its previous level. Before you sinned, it was innocence. Now you sinned, you betrayed me. So you know what? It's not the same. The taste, the flavor is not there. It's like when you date someone. You can have a perfect person. You have no nothing against them, but you don't connect. There's no personal connection. It's something intangible, something intimate. You, you connect, you hit it off. You know, the person rubs you the right way, the person, you have like a soul connection, there's a trust. It's very subtle and very deep. So yes, in a court of law, you're exonerated and you're free. But the intimacy and that personal connection, it's not there. That soul connection is gone. This is where fasting comes into play. You fast and you deprive yourself through fasting in order to restore. You want to show Hashem how sincere you are. You're imploring Hashem. You want to reconnect. You want to reestablish that relationship. You want to enter into God's good graces. You want to become intimate again. Not a question of innocent, not innocent, guilty, not guilty. You want to go beyond that. Okay? I know that. I know I'm not guilty. And I know I'm forgiven. But I, I miss that relationship. I miss that intimacy. 
I miss that trust with you. And you fast, you want to reestablish it. And this is the concept that we find in the Talmud. The Torah says that after a Jew brings a sin offering, you can bring a burnt offering, an oilah. What's the purpose of the oilah? The oilah does not come to atone for any sins. As the Talmud asks, what's the point of the, of the burnt offering? If you do teshuva, if you don't do teshuva, then it's meaningless. If you just bring a sacrifice, but there's no teshuva, that, there's no repentance that accompanies it, then it's meaningless. So obviously there has to be teshuva. So if there is teshuva, what, what do you need a, a burnt offering? The answer is that the Talmud says the burnt offering is like a gift. You're offering a gift. After you've done teshuva, after you've been forgiven, now I'm offering a gift. I'm, I want to sh- restore the good relationship. I want to show you that I'm a, I'm, I'm a dear friend. It's not just... I miss that personal relationship. And that evokes a response from Hashem that now now you go into Hashem's goodwill, Hashem's good graces, that you, you enter into the innermost chamber again. You, you, Hashem allows you into His heart. You become personal again. You reconnect on a very personal, personal level. And that's why it says, Here, kapare, even though it's the same Hebrew word, earlier we talked about three different types of kapare. There, the Alter Rebbe explained kapare comes from the word to wipe away, to cleanse. You have to wipe away the, the scar that you've created, the negative energy that you've created. The, that's a barrier between you and Hashem. They have to get rid of that negative energy. It's like a husband and a wife ask each other forgiveness. They hurt each other and they ask each other forgiveness. And they're forgiven. Then you give a gift. You offer gifts. To recapture the romance, to recapture the, the beginning of the relationship. You once again reconstruct you know, why you fell in love in the first place. That innocence, that you all connected to each other. That's, the com- that's what a gift accomplishes. In this sense, kapara comes from the word to give pleasure. Nachasruah. Goodwill. Not to cleanse. We're beyond cleansing. The cleansing has already been done and accomplished. You want to bring a gift to bring back, restore the relationship to its original level, its original state. That's what the burnt offering accomplished. Today, we don't have a temple, sadly. Today, we don't have any offering, sadly. So in its, as a substitute, in its stead, we have fasting. The Jew fasts. It's considered as if you're offering a gift to Hashem. You're bringing an offering, just like the, the offering. You offer the fat of the animal, or for the blood of the animal. You sprinkle the blood on the altar and you burn the fat of the animal on the altar. The same is when you fast. When you fast, you are giving up. You're losing. You're giving up your weight. You're giving up your, your flesh. You're giving up your blood. You're giving up your food. You're giving up your blood. You're giving up your fat, your pleasure. 
you're offering your body, your physical body to Hashem, you're offering an offering to Hashem, it's a sacrifice to Hashem. You're sacrificing of yourself, of your flesh, of your blood, of your fat, of the animal within you. You're offering your food, the need to eat, which is so human. And it's part of the animal within us, the need to survive and to physically live and to survive. And you're offering that to Hashem that I'm going to fast, I'm going to deprive myself for a day, just as a gift offering for Hashem, as a sacrifice for Hashem. Out of your love for Hashem, you want to show, you want to demonstrate your love for Hashem. What can you offer Hashem? You want to offer something of yourself. By depriving yourself and fasting, you're offering a gift to Hashem. Hashem, here. This is mine. My body. My fat. My flesh. My blood. Offering it. Out of my love to you. This is my gift to you. This is the only gift we have. What gift can we give to Hashem? What do we own? We own nothing. Everything we have belongs to Hashem. When you deprive yourself, when you sacrifice, that belongs to you. That's our gift, Hashem. Hashem, I don't have much. Let me offer you a sacrifice. Something that's difficult for me. That goes against my nature. I'm giving up my nature. I want to eat. And I want to increase my blood. I want to increase my fat. And, I want to, and here I'm offering it to you. Only for my love to you, I want to offer you a sacrifice. It's the only gift I can give you. It's the only sacrifice. So this, Hashem, is interactive. Hashem responds. When you offer your offering to Hashem, when you make a sacrifice for Hashem, Hashem responds in kind and Hashem returns to you. Returns to you with a smile and once again you become in Hashem's good graces. Restored Hashem's goodwill. And the relationship is restored to its original state. Uh, today, when we have no offerings, uh, page 1019 is the third paragraph from the bottom. Today, when we have no offerings to call forth Hashem's pleasure, fasting replaces the offering. As the Talmud says, that the prayer of one who is fasting is, may my loss of fat and blood brought about through fasting be regarded as though I had offered it to you as a sacrifice on the altar. The purpose of fasting, then, is that one becomes acceptable to Hashem just as before the sin. This is why there are many cases of Talmudic sages who, for some trivial fault, undertook a great many fasts. He's going to bring three examples from the Talmud. Even though, as he says, there are many examples. But he's going to bring three examples from the Talmud where the rabbis, the Tanoim, the Talmudic rabbis, and all these sayings, they fasted. When they sinned, they fasted. So we find the concept of fasting in the Talmud. And the purpose of the fasting was not, nothing to do with Teshuvah. It's after you've done Teshuvah. The idea fasting is to restore yourself in Hashem's good grace. Example number one he brings. R. L. Lazar ben Azariah, for example, contended that a cow may go out wearing its strap between its horns on Shabbat, while his colleagues prohibited it. There's a, a mitzvah in the Torah that not only a Jew has to rest on Shabbos, but your animals also have to rest on Shabbos. Your animals can't work on Shabbos. The animals can carry on Shabbos. But whatever the animal needs for himself, that's not considered carrying. So there's a dispute between Abel Lazar ben Azariah and all his colleagues whether 
uh, your animal is allowed to wear his strap between his horns if it's considered carrying, or maybe it's for the sake of the animal and therefore he's allowed to. Rabbi so Lazar believes that you're allowed to, there's no prohibition, and the rabbis say it's prohibited. Okay. Once the neighbor's cow went out with his strap, and our Ozog did not protest because he did not support his colleague's view. He fasted so long that his teeth were black. What did he do here? What was the terrible sin that he did? He's trying to bring out that even a light sin, a very light sin, even seemingly insignificant sin, what happened there? He, it wasn't Rabbi Lazar and Azariah's cow, it was his neighbor's cow. He didn't protest. Well, he believed that you're allowed to do it. So why did he regret it? Why did he have to fast? To atone for what sin? It's not the halacha. No, no. This was before the halacha was, was decided. He can follow his own opinion. He didn't protest. The question is, why did he fast? What did he do wrong here? Did he do wrong because he didn't protest? No. Because it was wrong? No. Because according to his opinion, the neighbor didn't do anything wrong. When a Jew is obligated to protest. See, one Jew is responsible for each other. We're all responsible for each other. We see a fellow Jew sin, we're obligated to protest. To protest. The question is, what if we don't protest? Is it considered as if we've done the sin? In other words, we become responsible now. Since we didn't protest, we should have protested. We were, we had... But if you protest, then you know that it would have changed anything about the person. If you protest, if you protested, you did your part. You can't, you can't live the other person's life. But if you don't protest, and you have an influence on the person, maybe he would have protested, he wouldn't have sinned. You assume responsibility. Then it's not only he sinned, it's as if you sinned as well. But what if you knew that if you protested, he wouldn't pay attention to you, then wouldn't that make it worse? Well, it depends what kind of sin... If it's a clear sin, then you have to protest one way or the other. If the other person doesn't listen, it's his problem. Right. If it's a type of sin that's not clear, and in other words, it's not biblical, it's not clear, maybe someone who's ignorant is not aware of the Talmudic and edict, then, or the or Talmudic interpretation of the Torah, which is unclear, then if you know they're not going to listen, then you're not obligated to protest. But if it's a clear biblical prohibition, you are obligated to protest. And if you don't protest, not only the person who sins sin, you, it's considered as if you also sin. The same sin. In other words, it's not only that he sinned because really the neighbor did something wrong. And he didn't protest. So therefore, it's as if he desecrated Shabbos. Since he should have protested, and he didn't protest, so he, it's as if he's also desecrating Shabbos. That's not the case. Al-Tarebi is trying to prove how even on the most minor, insignificant sin, you see that Rabbi Lozab and Azariah fasted until his teeth grew black, became black. If you're talking about the sin of Shabbos, Shabbos is the strictest thing in the Torah. It's the equivalent of idolatry. 
So how can you bring a proof from, from this? Of course he fasted until his teeth became black. Because he desecrated Shabbos. By not protesting against his neighbor, it's as if he desecrated Shabbos. So, so it makes sense why he fasted until his teeth turned black. What's the Alter Rebbe bringing a proof? Alter Rebbe is trying to bring a proof that even a minor sin. That's what Alter Rebbe says. You know why he fasted? Because he didn't listen to his friend. Not because he desecrated Shabbos. By not protesting, it's as if his animal desecrated Shabbos. No, that's not the reason he fasted. Because according to Abulazim and Azariah, this is not considered a desecration of Shabbos. He believes it's permitted. But, it, what bothered him was that even though he believed firmly that he was right, he should have, out of respect for his friends, he should have deferred to his colleagues. It wasn't Allah wasn't decided yet. Allah wasn't decided, so he followed his Allah and then they followed their Allah. What about conscience? Yeah, exactly. But what bothered him was something very minor and significant. What's what's the mitzvah here? The mitzvah to listen to your colleagues. Okay. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was the leader. He was the president. You know, he has his own opinion. And he was 10 generations from Ezra, Ezra the scribe, and he was one of the wealthiest Jew alive and the wisest. And he was 18 years old, he turned, he turned white. white, like 70. He was appointed the president. Okay, I mean, it's not Rabbi Lazar and Azariah didn't listen to his peers. He was a loner. <laughs> okay, it's not the worst sin in the world. Not exactly, not dealing with desecration of Shabbos, you're dealing with something very minor, very insignificant. And yet, on something so minor, he fasted until his teeth turned black. He lost count how many fasts. Until his teeth turned black. Again, why? For the sin of not listening to your colleagues. Surely he did truva. And we learned earlier, the moment you do truva, you instantly forgive. <coughs> but the taste was gone in the relationship. His relationship with Hashem was damaged. It, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. You, did, you violated a minor thing. You know, the trust is gone. You're no longer part of the inner circle. You're disconnected. To restore, to regain that trust, to rebuild the relationship, Rabbi Lozab and Azariah was ready to fast until his teeth turned black because his relationship with Hashem meant everything to him. He wanted to recapture that purity, that innocence that he lost with adulthood and that he lost with, with this event, with this one single minor insignificant event. Could you imagine what a tzaddik he was? The only thing he had to fast in his life. If we had to fast for hours, <laughs> we fast our teeth fell out. But no. All year long. No. What? All year long. You have to fast. But here, the only thing in his life that he had to fast for was this story that he felt that he was the neighbor was allowed, no problem, no prohibition, no desecration of Shabbos. There was no reason to protest because of Shabbos. There was a reason to protest because the neighbor did not listen to his colleagues and followed his neighbor's opinion which happened to be the great Rabbi Lazar and Azariah, the president of the Jewish Supreme Court. Not a, not a, not a minor... Uh... And yet, it bothered him that he violated and did not listen to his colleagues. And therefore, in Hashem's eyes, something in the relationship, something was off in the relationship. It wasn't the same. And therefore, he was ready to fast, to offer gifts to Hashem, and gifts until his teeth turned black 
to restore, and surely he accomplished it, to restore, bring back the relationship to that innocence and purity, the way it once was. That's example number one that he brings. And then, you have the second example that he brings. Uh, so too. too. Rabbi Yeshua once remarked, I am ashamed of your words that you mind. Is he too? Black so, so Rabbi Yeshua once said, like seemingly in a very in a heated moment, a seemingly derogatory comment. That I'm embarrassed of your words, Beisham. So instead of saying it respectfully that, that Hillel was right, he said, how could he even say such an opinion? It's all embarrassing. Okay. I mean, the law was like Hillel. The law is like Hillel. But since he expressed himself in a language that was a little too sharp, Gosh. too edgy, too harsh, even though Shammai could take it, because Shammai, Shammai was all about truth. Shammai wasn't about flattery. Shammai hated anyone that flattered him. Shammai wanted brutal honesty. Say, <laughs> so if you want brutal honesty, I'll give you brutal honesty. How can you, your opinion is so illogical, it's embarrassing. Shammai was up to it. Shammai wanted it, welcomed it. But from Rabbi Yeshua's part, it's not respectful. How do you speak to Shammai? Bey Shammai. It wasn't even Shammai himself. The students of Shammai. So he felt, he, it bothered him so much. He couldn't sleep at night. It bothered him so much that again, he also, there were a lot of black teeth. He also, <laughs> he also fasted until his teeth turned black. Um. Do they have dentists in those days? I guess, I don't know. I don't know. You'll, you'll try it. Try fasting so many days. Maybe, uh, I don't know. Maybe if you don't have milk, I don't know what happens. Maybe it's symbolic. Because teeth tear. I have no idea. You know, we, we have to speak to the dentist. I'm serious. Look at societies. I don't know. Look at societies that are, that are malnourished or, 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 or that don't eat. Look at their teeth. Yeah, you lose your teeth. You lose calcium. Yeah, I had too much calcium. I turned white. So I guess if you don't have enough calcium, your teeth turn white. Enough calcium, whatever. Exactly. Maybe, listen. The rabbi, the Talmud is telling us a fact. If you fast so many times and you don't get the calcium you need, you don't get whatever, your teeth will turn black. So it bothered him so much. Also, it was a minor thing. It wasn't, it wasn't... You know, in the heat of the moment, and Shammai could take it, and Shammai welcomed honest feedback. Shammai wasn't, you know, Shammai didn't like any flattery. You know, when the rabbis argued, it was fire. And it was nothing personal. It wasn't, God forbid, that there be a Shua. It wasn't personal. It was it's so illogical. I don't understand. How can you say something like this? You pride yourself in your sharpness. Shammai was sharper than Hillel. How, how could you say such an opinion? I'm embarrassed for you. How can you even, stay, how can you even take such a position? It's not fitting for, for someone like you. So even in the insult, it's a compliment. Sheesh. And Shammai probably took it as a compliment. The Bey Shammai. And the students of Shammai. And nevertheless, it bothered him that he was too sharp. Insensible. In a moment, in an outburst, he spoke a little too sharp and he may have hurt their feelings and insulted right. And for this he fasted, he lost count how many times he fasted until his teeth turned black. Again, because he felt that something in his relationship with Hashem, something was gone. It's good, it's balanced. 
something was gone in the relationship. And he wanted to restore that sweetness, that innocence, that purity, that wholesomeness. And therefore, he offered a gift. He offered this fast. That's another example. Likewise, the third example. Likewise, Ravuna, because his film strap once turned over and they took 40 fasts. You see, there are many such instances recorded about Okay, so the Rebbe asks, since the Alter Rebbe starts out, on the bottom of 1019, that we find many examples. We find examples of the Talmudic rabbis, even for a light thing, a seemingly insignificant thing. They would fast. What happened, Rabbi Yeshua? The strap of the tefillin, the outside, the black, has, the black has to be on the outside. By mistake, it turned over. For the strap, the strap turned over. I mean, this is this is this should be the worst sin we should be accused of. We go through a life, and after 120 years, this is the only sin. By the way, this tells us the, what kind of kind of great rabbis, saints these rabbis were. In after living such a life. They, they found something. <laughs> what did they find? This tefillin turned over once. I mean, the strap of the tefillin turned upside down once. <laughs> In a heated moment, he said something sharp. Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah didn't protest his neighbor. Not for, any, not for doing anything wrong, but because he should have deferred to the, the opinion of his colleagues. Who were the majority. You know, these are insignificant. But the Alter Rebbe concludes, and there are many such examples. So why does he have to spell out these three? He could just say, give one example, and say there are many examples. Why does he spell out three? Oh, very good. So the wise one says, because there are three different kinds of sins. If you notice, one sin is a sin in thought. He watched and he did nothing. He should have deferred to his... Abel Azim and Azariah. Sin of omission, sin of thought. No, he didn't say anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He should have protested. The second sin was a, th- a sin of speech. In the heated moment, he said something sharp words to Prashant. Ravahunda. Ravahunda did something. Action. His tefillin turned out. The scraps of the tefillin. Al Rebbe wants to bring you though there are many examples. He wanted to bring one of each. An example in one of two sins in thought, in speech or an action because you know there's an argument to be made which of these three is worse which sin is worse a sin of speech a sin of action or a sin of thought on one hand we live we live in the world of action so action action is is the most important thing if you sin an action is worse than if you just sin in speech or if you sin in thought. On the other hand, a sin of thought is worse. Because thought 
is so intimate to the soul, is so much part of the soul. That's why you can't, can't stop thinking. You can stop speaking. You don't have to act. You can't stop thinking, just like you don't stop living. Because thought is very intimate. That's why when you damage, when you have a negative thought, it does a lot of damage to the soul. Much worse damage than action. Yes. That's what we find in the sacrifices. Once you offer the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is kosher, then you go ahead and you do an act. You leave over the sacrifice past its time. Or you bring the sacrifice outside of the temple. The sacrifice is good. You can't undo what was done. But the meat that was left over, or that you brought outside of the temple, is disqualified. But the action could only change now. It can't change the whole sacrifice. While if the Kayan who's offering the sacrifice, if he has a negative thought while he's offering the sacrifice, he has a thought he's going to eat the sacrifice in the wrong time. Then the whole sacrifice becomes disqualified. Because thought has such power that it, it can affect, it has a much broader range. Just like when you think. You can think in one minute. It can take you ten minutes to explain your one, your, your one minute of thought. Because in your thought, it's all together. It's all one point. When you have to explain it, you have to take each component and explain each detail. So by the time thought and action, by the time you thought, which is an original concept, by the time it expresses itself into action, the action has many components and many details. So the advantage is if you mess up one detail, it doesn't affect the other detail. Each detail is independent. It's separate from the other detail. Versus in thought, if you mess up in thought, if you, then it, it affects the whole picture. The whole sacrifice becomes no. So you, you can't control your thought, but you could control the content of your thought. You can't control whether to think or not, but you could control the content of it. You can change channels. Why think this? Let me change channels. Let me think about something else. That you could control. That we're obligated. You can't stop thinking, but you can definitely change channels. Action is not so revealing. It's not necessarily self-revealing. You can act, and it's not revealing. When you speak and you communicate, you're revealing something of yourself. And you're, who do you speak to? Who do you communicate? You speak to another person. Like it says, a slap it wears off. You forget it. But a word you'll never forget. Someone hits you, okay, the sting wears away, but by tomorrow morning it's forgotten. But someone insults you uh, 30 years later. <laughs> you're still insulted. And the sting still is still is still sharp. It's the power of words. So on one hand, every one of these has a certain uniqueness that's unique to the others. That's what he says. If you want to say thought is, is, is more severe than speech and action. Or you want to say speech is more severe than thought or action. You want to say action is the most, has the greatest impact. So Al-Tarebbe brings an example of one of each, of thought, speech, and action. Continue. These fasts. These fasts were not undertaken for the sake of repentance, nor as self Oh, why not for the sake of repentance? Because the moment he repented, he's forgiven. You don't have to fast until your teeth turn black. The moment you, figure, you do tshuva, especially for these events, these are positive things or whatever, the moment you, you, the moment you do tshuva, you're forgiven. 
even in the case where he insulted Beishamah. So he asked forgiveness. So the moment, Tshuva, that was done already. Suffering in order to complete a process of atonement, there were not sins of the kind that required this. Right, you would think, so maybe this is a proof that pain and suffering, fasting is part of Teshuvah. Because there are certain sins that in order to atone for those sins, you need pain and suffering. Maybe this is part of the pain and suffering. The pain and suffering that you inflict on yourself. The fasting. But this can't be so. Because the only type of sin which you need pain and suffering in order to achieve an atonement, are which types of sin? Only the type of sins which are accompanied by death penalty. Either in the hands of the court or in the hands of heaven. None of these sins are, come even close. He didn't listen to his colleagues. He insulted, he said something sharp to his the students of Shammai. His tefillin, the ritzua of the tefillin, the strap of the tefillin, turned over. <laughs> so none of these sins are the type of sins of the category where you need pain and suffering in order to achieve atonement. These are sins which either you're forgiven immediately, in case number, in case number one, or you're forgiven by asking forgiveness. But you don't need fasting. You don't need suffering. So obviously this fasting has nothing to do with atonement. To complete the tshuva. The tshuva was complete without the fasting. Without the first fast. So why did they fast not only once, but they fasted until their teeth turned black? Continue. The sole purpose. The sole purpose of these fasts was to restore the bonds of love between the former sinner and his maker. The Rebbe asks, in the first two cases, Abelazim and Azariah fasted so many times until he lost count, until his teeth turned black. Rabbi Yeshua fasted until his teeth turned black. Rabbi Huna, once in his life, fasted 40 days. Once in his life, the tefillin, the straps turned upside down, he fasted 40 days. Why? Why only 40 fasts? <laughs> he should have fasted until his teeth turned black. <laughs> so the Rebbe explains that the number 40 is very significant. We find the number 40 associated the giving of the Torah. The Torah was given in 40 days. Three sets of 40. The child in the mother's womb, when does it begin to form? This is after 40 days. Still 40 days, you can even pray that the child's child sex should change from male to female because it's not, it's not formed yet. It's still, it still go either way. 40 days is like the beginning of the birth. The beginning of the existence of the child. The beginning of the forming of the child. The flood was 40 days. The idea of teshuva. Teshuva, in a certain sense, is like a rebirth. You know, you severed, you damaged your relationship with Hashem. And you're trying to restore, to rejuvenate, to recreate, a rebirth of that relationship. So therefore, 
that rebirth is represented by the number 40. You know, because birth is the most important event in life. Because it's the difference before birth and after birth, the difference in non-existence and existence. <laughs> All the differences that you're going to accomplish the rest of your life once you're born, to better your existence, enhance your existence, to change it from a poor existence to a rich existence, from a dull existence to an exciting existence, or colorful existence. All those differences are nothing in comparison to the difference between non-existence and existence. The most dramatic change you'll ever experience in your life is birth, the moment of birth. That's why Rosh Chodesh, the birth of the moon, it's the moment of birth. And it burst out. The first moment. That's really the most precious. That's Because everything is contained in that moment. It's the seed. Everything is contained in that moment. Once you have the heart beats and you have a, uh, something to work with, everything else will follow. Okay, the potential. And then it will develop. But it's, it's all there in potential. Before it's born, it's nothing. So before 40 days, it's not the same. Only after 40 days, that's when you have an entity. Even in regards to the laws of abortion, there's a difference between before 40, after 40. So, so when you're talking about the shuva, you're talking about the rebirth, reconnecting, recreating that relationship. That's why he fasted for 40 days. Just like the Torah was given in the birth of the child, the, the forming of the child, the conception of the child. So, yes, you can fast until your teeth turn black, until you lose track. But when you fast for 40 days, you really, in that 40, you really have everything. You really have the birth. And all the potential is there. And from there, you can develop it. And that's why you fasted 40 days. 40 days was enough to accomplish the rebirth and from there you can develop it you don't need more fasting that's what Rabbi Huna fasted 40 days Rabbi Huna was one of the 40 actually it's very fascinating Rabbi Huna was one of the 40 who transmitted the Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu till the closing of the Talmud Mar Baravashi Rabbi Huna was uh, number 37 in the transmission. Rav Huna received it from um, Rav and Shmuel and Rabbi Yochanan. And then Rav Huna transmitted it to Rabba, Rabba transmitted it to Rava, and Rava to Mar Baravashi. So he was number 37, part of the 40. But he himself was part of the 40. The transmission of the oral Torah also is 40. Because everything, the birth of something is 40. The Torah, the written Torah was given in 40. The oral Torah was transmitted in 40 generations. Rav Huna was number 37, was part of that 40. So therefore in Teshuvah also, Rav Huna followed, was consistent. Also he fasted 40 days. That was, that was for him, that was enough. To restore and reconnect and give birth to this new relationship, renewed relationship. And um, that's why 40. On this basis, that fasting substitutes for an offering as such, has a place even when an individual does not need to undergo something in order to attain complete the 
the Arizal taught his disciples according to the principles of the Kabbalah, the number of fasts should be undertaken for many transgressions, even though they entail neither excision nor death by divine agency, in which case suffering would be necessary. For example, round or 151 fasts. Even for transgressing a rabbinic prohibition, such as drinking the wine non Jews, 73 fasts. Likewise, for neglecting a positive rabbinic announcement, such as prayer, 61 fasts. The Rebbe points out there's a big discussion, an argument amongst the rabbis, the Maimonides, Nachmanides, whether the mitzvah of prayer is a biblical commandment. According to Maimonides, in Deuteronomy, in Parshas Ekev, is a biblical commandment, in commandment 433, to pray to Hashem every day. Nachmanides disagrees and holds there is no biblical commandment pray every day. It's only rabbinic. Here, the Alter Rebbe seems to be saying it's only rabbinic. Elsewhere, the Alter Rebbe says, in a letter, the Alter Rebbe writes that prayer is biblical. What's the source for biblical? It says you should serve Hashem with your heart. How do you serve? It says in the Torah you should serve Hashem with your heart. The Talmud says, how do you serve Hashem with your heart? Prayer. But in this week's I, uh, I'm sorry, last week's parashah in the Kuti Torah, the Alter Rebbe says, says that it's rabbinic. Also, we learned earlier in the Tanya, chapter 38, that it's, it's rabbinic. But elsewhere, the Alter Rebbe says it's biblical. From here, Rebbe you... are saying uh, in the note that uh, it's the specific times. Right, exactly. So he says from here, you can't bring any proof. But Alter Rebbe is not getting into that whole discussion. Either way, even if you hold it's biblical, Maimonides explains that the mitzvah is not the prayers that we have today. How did they fulfill the mitzvah prayer before we had a set prayer book, which is only for the past 2,000 years, 2,600 years. If there was a biblical commandment 3,323 years ago to pray every day, how did they pray then? He said, the mitzvah was every day, once a day, to pray in your own language, to say, thank you, Hashem, and, and uh, you know, this is what I need. And There's no set time, there's no set language. You can pray once a day and you fulfill your obligation. The structure of prayer that we have today we pray three times a day and the whole prayer, the Nusachah prayer, this is rabbinic. This is an ab- a rabbinic obligation. No, who says there was, there, was no, there was a temple? They didn't need synagogues. When did synagogues start? The whole thing, when did synagogues start? They didn't always have synagogues. They had a temple. Um, there's a question. Yeah, so there's a question when synagogues started because there were, whenever every sacrifice, public sacrifice, had to have the participation of the Jewish people, the priests, the Levites, and they were representing the Jewish people. So the Jewish people would send the delegation, uh, they would stand at the sacrifice, and then they would have, not everyone could make it to Jerusalem, so many of them, some of them, part of the delegation would go to Jerusalem and literally be in Jerusalem in the temple during the sacrifice to represent the Jewish people, but there were also Jewish representatives who remained in their hometowns and they would gather together and they would, they would read the Torah and they would uh, special prayers. 
So, you know, that's the question, what's the origin of synagogues and when did it start? When exactly, in which period in Jewish time did synagogues begin? But no, it wasn't always there from the beginning. So the whole structure of prayer that we have today, this is rabbinic, not biblical. But, so that's what Alter Rebbe is saying, that if you violate, not if you violate, even if you say that the prayer is biblical, let's say you did not violate the biblical commandment. You prayed for a second, you prayed for three seconds, you, you said God, you said hello to God and you prayed. But you didn't pray, you didn't follow the rabbinic commandment of prayer. You didn't pray in the morning, you didn't pray in the afternoon, you didn't pray in the evening. So for this you have to, you have to do Teshuvah. Actually, just take a moment, Hasidus explains, Dr. Rebbe explains elsewhere, that the opinion of Nachmanides, who was actually a Kabbalist, who believes that prayer is only rabbinic, there's no biblical commandment to pray, except if you have a need, if you have a tzara, if, you have a, if you're in danger, if you have a need, then according to everyone, there's an obligation to pray. Mr. Nachmanides says there's no obligation to pray every day. You know, we don't have emergencies every day that we have to pray every day, thank God. Um, Nachmanides is not coming to minimize the importance of prayer. On the contrary, according to Nachmanides, prayer is even greater and more essential, plays a greater role in the Jew's life than according to Maimonides, who believes that it's a biblical mandate and obligation to pray. And the reason why it's not an obligation because it's greater than an obligation. The obligations, the positive commandments are compared to the 248 limbs in the body. Prayer is not a detail, it's not an organ, it's not a, a limb. Prayer is compared to the spine, the spinal cord. Prayer is an adjustment. Adjustment of your spinal cord. A good chiropractic adjustment. Better be flexible too. Because all the nerve systems, all the nerve systems are connected to the brain and through the spinal cord, which through the spinal cord connects to every part of the body. Your electrical system, your every system that you have, chemical, your digestive system, your lymph lymph node, every every part of you is really connected to the brain. But what connects the whole body to the brain? It's the spinal cord. And that's why a good chiropractor, worth of salt, not, not the real, the original chiropractor, which originally, originally was meant to heal all illnesses, it's really by straightening out your spinal cord and therefore clearing the connection to the brain and therefore allowing the brain to send new signals to recreate and bring health to the whole body. So this is the principle, the principle of adjustment, adjusting your spinal cord. So prayer is not a detail. According to Nachmanides, prayer is so essential. Prayer is the central, is the center. Of course, the spinal cord is not considered one of the organs in the body. But God forbid, if you don't have a spinal cord, there is no body. You have nothing. Prayer is the life source of all 248 commandments. Prayer is what connects you with Hashem. Prayer is what gives you life, vitality. Prayer is where you develop your love for Hashem, develop your relationship with Hashem, where you can consciously experience your relationship with Hashem. And that gives you life and energy and, and joy 
and that motivates you to do all the mitzvot and to infuse the mitzvot with passion and love. If you take prayer out of the picture, you're lifeless. You have a corpse. You may have all 248 limbs, but it's a corpse. It's dead. There's no solace. There's no joy. There's no life. So it's not to minimize prayer. Ah, prayer is not a mitzvah. Prayer is only rabbinic. No, on the contrary. The reason why it's not a mitzvah because it's not a detail. The whole, all the mitzvot are dependent on prayer. Prayer is the central. Prayer is when you are centered. Prayer is when you're focused. Prayer is when you're connected. Consciously connected. And therefore it suffuses life and energy into all the mitzvot come alive. But again, but else, so in some places, Alter Rebbe says it's rabbinic. Some places, Alter Rebbe says that it's biblical. And here he's not even discussing it. Either way, whether it's biblical or rabbinic, even if it's biblical, but the structure of prayer, unanimously, everyone holds as rabbinic. So let's say a person prayed, he followed the biblical commandment, but he didn't follow the rabbinic commandment. The structure of prayer. So for that, he has to do teshuva by fasting 61 fasts. As a general rule, the mystery of fasting is wondrously effective for the revelation of the supreme will, similar to an offering of which it is said, an aroma pleasing to God. So here, the Alter Rebbe is saying something startling, something very powerful, and he's taking it a step further. For step number one is teshuva. And part of teshuva, to complete the teshuva, you also need an atonement. You need a cleansing. You have to wipe away the scar. And then, only then is your teshuva complete. But the relationship is not the same. Step number two, you bring a gift. You bring an offering. You bring a sacrifice. You restore the relationship the way it was before, before the sin. Here we're talking about something else entirely. A Jew who never sinned. The relationship was never broken. It never regressed. Thank you. And yet, through fasting, you can elevate the relationship. You can take it to a much higher level. You can create a much deeper level of intimacy. Bring out a much deeper level of closeness to Hashem. That's the power of fasting. He says fasting is a school on the floor. Is wondrously effective. A segula. A wondrous segula. That it has the ability to evoke Hashem's will. It touches Hashem in such a deep place. So even not to restore, nothing negative happened. But you want to elevate it to a much higher level. Out of your love for Hashem, you want to give a gift to Hashem. You want to bring, take the relationship to a, a whole new level. That's why you fast. Just like the sacrifice. The sacrifice, the burnt offering, is not only to atone for mitzvot, for the violation of mitzvot. Even if you have nothing to atone for, you just want to bring a sacrifice just to give Hashem pleasure, to be a pleasurable aroma of Hashem, to give Hashem nachas. The power of the sacrifice to evoke and to touch Hashem's will 
to touch Hashem in the most personal, intimate place. Because what's will? Will is something very personal. It's not a question, just like when you date. You have black and white, you know, this person meets all my criteria. You put, you put, you take a pen to a paper, everything that I'm looking for, this person has. Perfect. But there's no chemistry. There's no chemistry. Chemistry. If there's no chemistry, it doesn't mean anything. On paper, everything is perfect. Will is chemistry. Attraction. Attraction is chemistry. It's intangible. You can't force it. You can't, well, on paper, everything looks good. <laughs> you know, there's no chemistry. I mean, it's beautiful, but there's no chemistry. It's a black suit and a white suit. Beautiful black suit, but there's no connection. It's a soul connection. The power of the sacrifices, it's a nachas ruach, it touches Hashem and evokes Hashem, it creates chemistry. It brings intimacy, romance, connection. This is the power of the sacrifice. So it's a sgul on the floor. It's a wondrous, wondrous ability of sacrifice. I think the Alter Rebbe is the first one to say this. That he's not saying sacrifice. That the fasting, which is a substitute for sacrifice. Today we don't have sacrifice, but the same, because it is a sacrifice. You're sacrificing yourself, your blood. You're depriving yourself of food. It's You're not fattening yourself. It's probably. Anytime you want. It's a gift. So he says, this is a trem- mystery of fasting. It's a tremendous gula. It t- it's, no one ever looked at a fast day as an ace rotten, that it's a time of will. And now he brings a proof. You have to have a proof for this. This is a startling statement to make. Fast days usually associated with negative, negative events. You're fasting. Here he's saying it's a fast day. Nothing to do with negative. The fasting itself is a very powerful moment when Hashem is actually smiling. Hashem is, you're evoking that personal chemistry, you're evoking that very deep, intimate connection. You're touching Hashem in the deepest place, so to speak. You're touching His will. You're touching Hashem Himself. (coughs) This revolutionizes your whole perspective on fast day, on a fast day. A fast day is a tremendous opportunity. It's a time, it's not just a time of harshness and a time of negativity, it's actually a time when Hashem is, Hashem is so open. And Hashem is so near and attentive and is intimate. That's what fast day evokes within Hashem. And he brings a proof of this. First he says, it says in the, it says in Leviticus that, if, that the, the sacrifice is a reach nichoyach Hashem is a pleasant aroma for Hashem. And a fast day today is a substitute for for sacrifice. As it says in the Talmud. But now he brings also a proof from Isaiah. Thus in Isaiah we find do you call this a fast day and a day desirable to Hashem? Obviously, an acceptable fast is a desirable right. day. He's admonishing. Isaiah is admonishing the Jewish people. He says, you call this a fast. This is called a fast day. Fasting is not dieting. <laughs> fasting is you have to change. You have to, you have to turn to Hashem. It's not just... It's not about cosmetics. Fasting is soul-stirring. You get, remove all the distractions and you can focus and concentrate and do soul-searching. 
he says, for this you call a fast, and is this desirable to Hashem? What do you see from this? What do you see from this? That a fast day, if it's done properly, is a day that's desirable to Hashem. Who would call a day, a fast day, desirable? Don't sin and don't fast. Obviously, fasting has nothing, it's not, nothing to do with sinning. The fasting itself is a desirable day for Hashem. It touches Hashem's will. It create, recreates that chemistry and that personal intimacy and that personal connection. That's the power of fasting. So this is the highest level. Even a Jew didn't sit. When you fast, you have the ability to evoke, to take the, the relationship to a whole new level, a whole new depth, to evoke that chemistry again and that romance and that intimacy and that personal connection with Hashem. That's the power of physically fasting. A fast day not only restores the relationship the way it was before, but a fast day has the ability to take the relationship to a much higher level. Much, much deeper, much higher. Higher than it was before. Deeper than it was before. More intimate. So that's the ultimate level of fasting. The ultimate purpose behind fasting. Like everything else, Alter Rebbe says, it's so astonishing and revolutionary, like so matter-of-factly. But it's like, uh, you know, you look at it in such a refreshing way and it changes. You'll never look at a fast day the same. You'll never experience the fast days. It's not about torture, negativity. Yes, you're fasting. And you're depriving yourself. And that's why it's a sacrifice. You're offering your flesh. You're offering your blood. You're offering your fat. And yet, what's it about? It's not about deprivation, negative, torture, morose, depression. It's about, I'm restoring my connection with Hashem. I'm restoring that chemistry. We're dating again. It changes your whole look on a fast day. Suddenly, there's a whole new energy, a whole new vitality, a whole new depth, and a whole new approach to fasting. This is what Hasidus does. It takes something which appears to be even negative and it, suddenly it gives it a whole new life. And you look at it, you see it in a whole new light, a whole new viewpoint. And it's, it transforms you. It's inspired. It's inspiring. It's what a fast is. This is what the real meaning of a fast is. It's a time of goodwill. Who would ever believe that a fast is a time of goodwill? Dr. Rebbe says, from Isaiah, you see it clearly. Is this a day of goodwill for Hashem? Is this how you fast? But if you do fast properly, then it's a time of goodwill. Not a negative time. It's a time of goodwill. It's a time to become intimate, close. You're on a date with Hashem? No drinks, no food, we're on a date. <laughs> a, cheap, a cheap date. <laughs> yes. But uh, still, like, uh, the only day that I could think of like this would be Yom Kippur. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, we're going to have this fast day. Right, next week we're not going to have a class. Instead of the cl- But now we're prepared for that fast. Now we know what a fast is all about. Right, but the point is it brings us to atonement. I mean, it's not all or nothing, is it? I mean, uh, you know, there were four things that happened uh, that we're atoning for. You know, uh, the spies, you know, the... Uh, 
uh, breaking into the, the walls, you know? In other words, there are reasons, uh, you know, that we're fasting. In addition to, I understand what you're saying, you know, and this is a Not, no, Nothing to do with atonement. That he already established in chapter one. Fasting has nothing to do with atonement. So, uh, fasting is fasting when, uh, because we want, we want to change the decree. The fact that we're still in exile is obviously because we're continuing the ways of our ancestors that brought about the exile in the first place. So we have to, we have to stop it. We want to change the decree. We want Hashem to build the base on Migdash and we shouldn't have to fast. On the contrary, these fast days should be turned into, into holidays, right? Feast days, very good. Um, so, the, yeah, the purpose of the fast, look again at the end of chapter 1. Alter Rebbe already clearly established fast days has nothing to do with atonement. That's a mistake that people make. Fasting has to do with atonement, nothing to do with atonement. So why do we only fast on prescribed days? Yeah, can't we do it not prescribed? Actually, oh. so, because, again, the whole point that we're trying to describe here, and even this point, that the fast day is not about torture or negativity. It's about joy and... Uh, restoring that goodwill it's a day of goodwill so the emphasis of fasting and teshuvah is all about goodwill joy, positive so the Baal Shem Tev said therefore the focus should not be on negative fasting for most people connotes negativity and we are not strong you know, the older generations they can fast and it wouldn't affect them we, our generations are weaker we fast we're going to grow weaker. We won't have the strength that we need to serve Hashem with joy. So the, pur- the, the purpose of fasting is not negativity. It's not about the fasting. It's about living. It's about living and being joyful and being connected with Hashem and being vibrant and having a vibrant relationship and a vital relationship and a living, dynamic relationship. And that we can do without fasting. Especially in our generations, we're weaker. We don't have the strength to fast. So therefore, the emphasis today is shifted, and Alter Rebbe later will discuss about today's generation, how we shouldn't fast. That's not the approach that we should take. We have to substitute that with tzedakah. And our emphasis has to be joy, study more Torah, use all the energy that we have for something positive. But Alter Rebbe is shifting here. The whole Hasidic movement is shifting. The whole emphasis of teshuva without Hasidus is very somber, very heavy, you know, almost negative and dark. And and Al-Tarebi says nothing could be further. And even fasting, it's all about goodwill. It's all about dating Hashem, creating that chemistry, reconnecting. It's not, it's not negative. It's not, that's not what it's about. It's all positive. So it shifts the whole focus on, on what the emphasis has to be. It's about living. Join the living. When you sin, you're not living. When you're connecting with Hashem, that's when the Jew comes alive. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.